Today I have the pleasure of being joined by James Medway, former Chief Economist to the New Economics Foundation, many time guest on Navara FM, and now consultant to the office of the Shadow Chancellor, John McDonnell. Hi, James. Hi. We're speaking on the Monday. We'll be talking about the budget. That was, of course, last Wednesday. We'll be talking about what it meant, Labour's immediate response, then the Tories' immediate response to that, right? Still ongoing. So much to talk about both on the economic side and the political fallout and how this fits into a broader vision ahead of 2020, the next general election, and the kind of economic platform that Labour are set to offer to the country and how that might be received. James, first question, easy question. What were the big takeaway policies from last Wednesday? Well, the big takeaway from the budget is is actually not the one that uh, George Osborne wanted us to talk about, which is the announcements about turning every school in the country into an academy, uh, a small amount of what he claims is extra funding uh, to help that process along, and of course the sugar tax. That's what he wants us to talk about. What people are actually talking about is what he doesn't want the conversation to be, which is uh, major cuts to personal independence payments for disabled people. So these are payments that cover uh, money for those who need help just so they can live independently, really. You know, if you need uh, assistance with uh, washing and that sort of thing, that's what it, that's what he's cutting. It's £1.2 billion so that by 2020, about a third of all the, quote, savings that they're looking to make will be coming from cuts to uh, payments being made to disabled people. Now, that is the story that's coming out of the budget, and, and that's why there's a big political fallout from it. Anything else? Uh, on top of this, well, look, the, the reason the budget is falling apart is that these things don't happen by accident. They don't just spontaneously combust. The budget is about the most important single regular announcement that any government makes. So they put an awful lot of effort over the Treasury into making sure that everything is bought in place. They have a clear political line of thing. They have a, a way they want to set up the argument around the budget, which is the plan about how the government's going to tax and spend for basically for the rest of the year. Uh, and they want to organise the whole thing so they get a clear message out of it. They're in control. They've got the message. They have the narrative. What George Osborne wanted to do in this budget was make absolutely certain he would hit his surplus target uh, at the end uh, of this parliament. So this is the £10 billion surplus. That's what he's saying is the government will be getting uh, more in taxes and it's actually spending by the end of Parliament. He fixed that in place and then tried to construct the rest of the budget around it. Now what that meant in the circumstances where the economy itself uh, as the Office of Budget Responsibility, the people who do the forecast, the official forecast, have said the economy itself is much weaker uh, than, than certainly George Osborne or really any of us would like, and therefore it's a very difficult operation to hit that surplus target. Nonetheless, he had a go at it, and that is what led him to make, I think, a series of very bad decisions around where the cuts are going to land and who's going to be, who's going to be suffering out of the package of the whole budget. Do you think it's fair to say that in the situation with the deficit, because obviously, look, this thing was meant to have been eliminated by 2015, yes. the situation is getting so desperate, now growth is dampening down. Like you say, this is the kind of flagship, not even policy. This is the totem around which the Conservative Party has sought to build its credibility, right? That looks at risk. And do you think all of a sudden, really important political calculations have been jettisoned just for this one thing, deficit elimination? And that's really led to a complete shambles, right? Yeah, oh, totally. Look, it's it's a bad, you will not find a single credible economist. I, I really can't think of anyone who will say that the surplus target is an economically good idea. It's a pure political positioning. It's a thing they have to cling on to because they have to make it look like that their economic, their long-term economic plan is in fact working. Now, actually, none of it is really working. Productivity revised downwards, wage growth revised downwards, business investment fell, uh, business investment sector revised downwards over the next few years. Government 
government's own investment falling as a share of GDP. None of this looks good. None of it from this point onwards. So they have to cling on to this surplus because it what makes it look like they have some degree of economic credibility. They don't actually have economic credibility on this. Economically speaking, the surplus target is nonsense. Politically, however, it means that George Osborne can say, I'm still delivering the goods. And that's important for him because he, as we all know, has personal ambitions about wanting to be the next leader of the Conservative Party, which is, of course, where one of the other decisions, I suspect, comes in. And it's a political choice to do this, which was to say we're going to cut uh, taxes through capital gains tax. We're going to cut capital gains tax, mostly paid by uh, a, really a small number of people right at the top end of the income distribution. And it's a substantial cut that he's made to that. You then get a whole package in the budget where you're cutting taxes for really wealthy people and you're cutting spending uh, for those with disabilities. This is bad, bad news. Corporation tax down to 17%. Of course, as well. that's the other one. Utterly pointless. No, I it can't. I'm, I just cannot find uh, an economic justification for doing this. It's not delivering the goods in terms of business investment. I suppose that would be the case they try and make in this. Yeah. Business investment fell over the last quarter of I mean, last year. saying productivity, right? They're oh, yeah. saying that. You know, oh, yeah. God. I mean, look, the, the whole productivity is, is, is this. Productivity is what's underlying basically George Osborne's problems. George Osborne has a problem. He's, he's kind of he's kind of a postmodern chancellor, right? He thinks if he can tell the story and do the politics, everything else is just going to be fine. The trouble is the economy is a real thing. It's made up of people actually doing stuff. Money matters. And so he's only so far you can pursue any story. That's what he's run up against. The real story of the British economy is that it is low investment and low productivity. And that's what's chewing away at everything Osborne's now trying to do. Growth's been revised down. That was a another one of the sort of big takeaways. Um, here are the figures. Uh, this year, the economy is expected to grow by 2%. It was 2.4% at the time of the autumn statement last year. Uh, growth for 2017 is now specified at 2.2%, again down. At the time of the autumn statement, it was predicted to be 2.5%. Reminder, that's for next year, 2017. Growth's coming down. Is it fair to say that the strategy over the last couple of years was uh, getting lots of people onto the labour market, mm -hmm. often in very unskilled, low-skilled, low-paid service work, lots of outsourcing, UK world's second largest outsourcing market. A lot of this, by the way, feeds into self-employment figures, which is you know nothing to be proud about. So do you think that this big input for the last couple of years was people coming onto the labour market, lots of cheap labour, uh, you know, all of these you know, help-to-work programmes and workfare programmes, and then, you know, a really big intrinsic part of that. Do you think that strategy now is beginning to be exhausted. There simply aren't enough people now to keep on pumping into the labour market. I mean, I think somewhere I read that women's rate of um, employment rates for women are the highest they've ever been in Britain. Mm -hmm. Do you think then that once you've exhausted that avenue, productivity is the only means by which growth can go up and that these revised figures going down really uh, exemplify the problem that UK has now with productivity. Without increased productivity, there is no way Britain can have the right amount of growth to deal with the deficit. Uh, that's uh, absolutely it. This is the, the real sort of long-term uh, economic problem that, that George Osborne has singularly failed to, to deal with. I mean, the gap uh, in terms of how much output per hour, how much is produced on average for every hour worked in Britain compared to Germany or France or the US, is about the biggest it's been for a generation since about 1991. So we're a significantly less productive economy than comparable places elsewhere. Now, what's happened over the last few years is that this has been, as you say, compensated for uh, through high rates of employment growth. So you get lots and lots of people working, but the work they're doing is not necessarily that productive in the big picture sense. So that's the problem that you're up against there. There's also, I think George Osborne was incredibly lucky 
Turkey uh, with uh, the fall in the price of oil over the last year or so, which over 2014-15 fed into rising real wages because you had very low rates of inflation. Now, this is absolutely nothing really to do with his own policy. It's kind of a free gift via, really, via Saudi Arabia. I mean, this is what, what's responsible for the collapse in the oil prices, decisions taken by OPEC as much as anything, much more than anything George Osborne's done. But he was lucky with that. It, it, it was kind of a sugar rush for the economy. It's a little bit of a boost. We're an oil importing country now. We have been since 1999. Uh, so it's a bit of a boost for the economy. It's a bit of a boost for spending power. It makes real wages look better when you have a low rate of inflation for a period of time. Now, permanently low rates of inflation, when you have a weak labour market like we have, when you know we just don't have labour in a, a strong bargaining position, that starts to look a bit more uh, unpleasant. It, it's one of the reasons that he's missing, Osborne is now missing his debt target, is that the size of the economy, because our rate of inflation is, is low, the size of the economy in money terms isn't as big as people expect, and therefore it's harder to hit uh, his debt target, which of course he's now missing. So, Corbyn's response to the budget initially, I quote, he said it had unfairness at its very core. This is more of a political question than an economic one, I suppose. You know, when it comes to a budget, does the electorate really care about fairness? You know, the big sort of indicators by which the government's asked to be judged, the deficit, the debt, unemployment, I mean, they can point to all of those, broadly speaking, over the course of the last six years, it's not that great a story to tell, but there's something of a story to tell, isn't there? Or do you think Jeremy's on to something by talking about unfairness? I think the issue here is to, to indicate that, that it's not just that the talk. I mean, people, I'm sure people expect conservatives to, to behave like conservatives, and George Osborne is a, a conservative chancellor, so they'll make their own uh, judgment on that. The issue here is George Osborne's competence and credibility as chancellor. Now, the important thing, I think, that Labour did over the last two weeks was not just to pin straight away the unfairness in saying we're going to take money from those with disabilities at the same time as doing really quite substantial tax cuts for very wealthy people. This is the capital gains tax cut in particular. That that was right, but the ground was prepared previous to that with the announcement by John McDonnell of Labour's new fiscal credibility rule, which is... What they're saying uh, here is that Labour does have a plan and a strategy backed up by world-leading economists, by the Economic Advisory Council, to shrink the size of the deficit on day-to-day spending over a five-year period, but of course to maintain the capacity of government to invest, which is actually the the big sort of long-term economic problem we're up against here. Now, because that ground was prepared before the budget, it meant that Jeremy's response, I think, could be a lot stronger during the budget, and it meant that we're on firmer ground afterwards in dealing with the fallout from the budget. So again, another quote from Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, And again, I quote, this is less about fairness. This is less of a kind of emotional frame, I suppose, more of a rational one. Quote, the budget the Chancellor has just delivered is actually the culmination of six years of his failures. It's a recovery built on stand on a budget of failure. He's failed on the budget deficit, failed on debt, failed on investment, failed on productivity, failed on the trade deficit, failed on the welfare cap, failed to tackle inequality in this country. That's a long list of Tory party failings. Recent polling shows that quite a lot of the public actually agrees with it. So what is Labour's economic vision for Britain and how does it deal with those problems just listed? The deficit, debt, investment, productivity uh, and trade and the trade deficit. Well, John McDonnell laid out his, his sort of vision, in outline at least. I mean, it's a long way from the, the election, uh, assuming things run to timetable, the election's due in 2020. But he, um, he laid out a vision, as I said, before the budget, which includes first the fiscal credibility rule, which sets a framework for understanding how the government will make its spending decisions. This is the big macro picture stuff. How is it going to clear uh, the deficit and day-to-day spending? How is it going to provide the capacity 
capacity of government to invest where, where it's needed. And that's the second part of it, is that we have to drive up the rate of investment uh, in this country. It needs to be significantly higher uh, than it is at the minute, and that is from all sources, public and private. That is what starts to get you the productivity gains. That includes spending, of course, on infrastructure. It includes spending on scientific research. It includes uh, thinking about how to make you know the, the research that we do here. That's quite a lot of it. How to turn it into economic rewards, how to get the innovation process working properly. Mariana Mazzucato, who is on the Economic Advisory Council, has written very, very well about this, talked about an entrepreneurial state, that's her phrase, uh, about the role of the state in creating and enabling new technologies and delivering innovation in this way. So that's a change, actually, in what, what previous governments have done over do you, the last do 30 you, years or so. Do you think that may... Do you think then the trick here is you're trying to establish a different understanding of economic competence altogether? Because right now the electorate associates, and it's been a long project, right, to create this kind of ideological hegemony around what is competence. They think it's around high employment. They don't even think it's around wages. Mm. You know, you've still got this line. I was watching today, BBC Parliament, you've still got this line coming out from David Gork, and he's saying, you know, people are going into work. We're dealing with poverty through people going into work. The point is, in work poverty in this country is higher than out yeah. of work poverty. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the hallmarks, actually, of the post 2010 sort of conservative coalition and now conservative governments. Uh, do you think then that this new idea of competence being around increased role for the state, uh, the entrepreneurial state, as Matt Cato says, do you think that's something? A sort of project for the next four or five years that Labour has to win and if they don't win it they haven't got much chance of winning in 2020. Well it's a different role for the state. I mean if you take the last 30 years or thereabouts of successive governments in this country they tended to think of the role of the state as at the most involved with competition policy. So you create a level, level playing field and then free markets kind of sort things out and maybe you patch up a few market failures here and there. If you're talking about a different role for the state, if you're talking about repurposing how the state works with the wider economy then this is something that we haven't really uh, seen from governments over the last few years or so. As I said, Matt Carter writes very, very well uh, on this sort of thing, but, but so do a lot of people. There is a broad consensus, by the way, uh, from you know the OECD, the IMF. Uh, broadly speaking, those who are concerned about macroeconomics would say that governments ought to be at a time like this, when there are, as George Osborne has been wont to point out, there are you know global economic headwinds, there are things going wrong in the rest of the world economy, this is a time for governments to be looking to invest, and that, I think, has to be uh, the part of it. John also made a, a, another uh, point, and he laid out another broader thing in, in the speech last week, which is, of course, talking about... We need to get away from, and I think I think uh, he's trying to get away from this idea that really the government's just there to solve sort everything out for you the whole time. The, there's this tradition in the labour movement in this country of a kind of do-it-yourself aspect of uh, saying how do we run our own workplaces. It's the tradition of girl socialism, the Institute for Workers' Control. It's that end of things. It's cooperative society tradition. It's like self-help. You know, that is the sort of thing I think that uh, John has, has, has spoken about, and I think we can do some useful work around this because it's, it's appealing to people, I think, in a way that simply saying, it's all right, government will sort everything out, just doesn't quite cut it. People are very suspicious, and you can see why, about, yes, they're suspicious about big corporations, but they can be quite suspicious about big government as well. So we have to think of what it means to do a sort of grassroots, democratic, decentralised version of how you might run the economy better than this. Is it fair to say, then, that this kind of trajectory is running between sort of two, not extremes, let's say two histories? One is the sort of labor socialist movement trade union movement which has a particular understanding of the role of the state mm -hmm. how that helps the interests of labor against capital we know that right there's also of course those new labor mm -hmm. who sort of swallowed wholesale 
the shibboleths you're talking about, the role of the state and industrial policies to create a level playing field, mm-hmm. no more, no less, maybe stop monopolies, not even that sometimes, but that's about it. That sounds pretty difficult to carve that kind of trajectory in several years between basically these two big traditions around how a Labour government does the economy. What kinds of policies do you think could really stick out in people's minds that would really delineate this government, potentially, from the Labour government under Blair or historic Labour governments, which were far more interested in, uh, you know, state socialism. Yeah, yeah, no, I, th- I think you're right to, to indicate, and, and John said this previously, spoke at a conference of cooperatives up in Manchester back in January on this, that new Labour is was a Labour government. It delivered a lot, actually. I mean, it's, it's worth saying that this is not just some terrible, awful thing. Lots and lots of things were delivered and done well by new Labour in a way that we haven't seen uh, under this Conservative government. But it was still into and part of that Labour tradition which was about the state and the role of the state and the particular vision of that. Now I think if you start to change how that conversation goes and make clear and some people who I think who identify with the new Labour project have seen that there's a need to sort of rethink how we do some of this stuff if you start to shift that you might pick out for instance John's reference to creating a right to own that you want to be able to say to people in workplaces where there's a change of ownership they're being bought out or perhaps the owner's retiring you know that's something that's bearing down in this very soon lots and lots of baby boomers who run their own businesses often very successfully coming up to retirement so the succession issue so you create a right to own with support from the state where you say to people in a workplace look you can own and run this yourself right now that takes you out of a kind of state-centered labor tradition in this country and it puts you into one that's a decentralized tradition people like harold lasky for instance right in the 1930s gdh call that's the kind of place where you can start to talk and you use this. what an industrial bank is that industrial yeah, bank? you could do yes i think there's been a lot of interesting proposals uh, around making our banking system work better it's clear that it's not performing as it should for small businesses, very obvious example where it's underperforming there. The fact we have such a concentrated uh, banking system, you know, what, five major high street banks really dominate uh, how banking, high street banking operates. Uh, this is unusual. Most countries don't have this. Germany doesn't have this. The US doesn't have this. So you'd want to create new institutions on a regional, local basis and start to deliver financing like that. And there's been a lot of interesting proposals around this. James, on that note, thank you very much. Thank you.